The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.
Good morning, friends of the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco. Good morning. And good morning, visitors who are joining us for the first time or one of the first times. It is fabulous to be together this morning. I imagine that some of you are a little hoarse from screaming yesterday, or maybe your arms are a little tired from beating on pots and pans. Maybe your legs are a little weary from dancing because we, we begin this Sunday after a week that was full of ups and downs and knotted stomachs and ultimately that stepped back from a precipice of sacrificing one of our most sacred inheritances, our democracy. So on this day, we join with relief and jubilation and reflection about our lives and our lives as citizens. We join here together in worship, and it is so good and so important to be here together. I want to, first of all, thank Reiko Odelaine for that amazing set of organ music pieces to rouse the soul and the spirit and remind us of how good it feels to be alive. We also want to thank Andre Vera for being here. Uh, we, we asked him at the very last minute for reasons that will become incredibly obvious to be here, and we are super grateful that you made space to, to bless us with your music. To Mark Sumner and to our poor, chilled and uh, wind-ridden singers who are out in our courtyard, bless them. Brielle Nielsen, Leandra Ram, Ben Rudiak Gould, Asher Davidson, who will be bringing us a song. Bless them amidst the cold chill of a fall morning in San Francisco. To Eric Shackelford and Shuli Ong, our camera people, to our director of communications. Jonathan Silk, who makes this possible every week in so many ways. To Joe Chapeau, who is on our chat. And so if you are having issues or questions, you can write it in our chat, and he will get back to you right away to help guide you through. To Thomas Brown, our sexton, who's opened the building and kept us safe and taken care of this morning. And most certainly for me, I want to thank a member of this congregation, a minister, uh, my minister growing up, and my mentor and friend and former UUA president and former senior minister of this congregation, the Reverend Dr. John Burens. I cannot imagine a better person to preach to us this day as we begin to reflect and decide how to step forward from this moment in time, from this hard chapter into the future that we want to shape together. So I'm super grateful that he agreed to be with us here today. So, with whatever theme song is animating your heart this morning, and I know there were lots being shared yesterday online, for this new day dawning, we light our chalice the chalice, no, not our chalice, our candle for the spirit of all of you who are not here with us 
in body this morning, but are here with us in spirit. We represent your presence by this flame, lighting it until such time as we can be here together in body again. So blessings and welcome to worship, everybody. Let's begin our celebration together with hymn number 318, We Would Be One. The words, the music are in your order of service. Sing out loud from your homes. Let's join together. invite you, if you would, to join me in saying the words of our chalice lighting printed in your order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. 
we light the symbol of our faith as we gather together. If this is your first time joining us this morning, besides welcoming you, I want to make sure that you know how to follow along with the order of service. This document that we are using is available to you too. It's there for you to download in the description of this video. It is actually also emailed to everyone who receives our newsletter, which you can get by signing up through a link that's in the order of service, it's in the video description, or just email us to any email account you can find and we will sign you up to get our weekly and our monthly newsletter. In this order of service, besides all of the elements of our worship service, there are also a full set of listings. There is also a full set of listings of upcoming events. And we would invite you to consider being part of any or all of those that interest you. In particular, I want to mention that after service every week, you can enter a Zoom coffee hour that is led by Alex Starr and now a new team of folks who is helping him to host and make that time together possible. So please, when worship's over, come meet a small group of people. We break out into chat rooms and breakout rooms so you can get to know a few faces, a few names, connect with a few people who you will then someday get to meet, I hope, in person. If you are someone who is black, indigenous, a person of color, we want to make sure that you notice, and there is an announcement in the order of service, that we have a special gathering, a caucusing of our BIPOC group, often meeting the first Sunday of the month from 9.30 to about 10.50 through Zoom. Sometimes there are special gatherings in addition if circumstances in the world necessitated or there's a program or an idea that invites people to connect in between. So I want to invite you to participate in that. You'll also notice that we have a Journey Toward Wholeness Racial Equity Task Force that meets once a month. And so please, everyone, consider joining that in our effort to indeed work to make ourselves and the world more whole around things that have divided us for too long. In particular, too, if you're interested in that work, our discussion of the book Cast by Isabel Wilkerson is continuing. We've divided it up into three sessions, meeting weekly. And the second session is going to happen this week on Wednesday or Thursday. You can find details online and in the order of service. You just have to quickly catch up and read, if you haven't already, the first 260 pages. And then join us for the third week when we read the final third of the book. It's a lovely way to get to kind of wrestle with the material together with lots of thoughtful people. And finally, two other, I mean, there's lots of fabulous programming, but two other things I want to make sure, especially for our newcomers that you see. One is that we're going to be having what we call Spirit Saturday, which was an experiment we started last year of a Saturday morning when we would actually gather here in person in the morning for a brief time of coffee and connection and, and then go out into workshops for about an hour and a half and come back for a brief discussion or lunch if you could stay. And we're going to do our first virtual version of Spirit Saturday on Saturday, November 21st. You can register, pick the workshop you're interested in, 
and deepen your spirit in this time, which for all of its restrictions does allow us, I think, the space and the invitation to go inward in ways that deepen us in this time, use it as an opportunity to deepen. And lastly, our intern, Meg McGuire, has started a newcomer small group. Please look for that. It's Mondays from 7 to 8.30. It's the response to some of the folks who were in our most recent new UU class saying at the end of those two sessions that they wished that that group was a small group. So she's got some fabulous framing questions for wrestling and opportunities for people to get to know each other and dig into important spiritual and discernment issues in your own life that probably brought you to church. So I hope that you'll consider signing up for that. I think it's gonna be fabulous and Meg is wonderful. So you'll get to know her a little bit better too. There are many more things that might be something you would wanna attend or be part of. Please take your time and please join in any and all of them. I believe that is all of our invitations for the morning. Let me invite us now to still ourselves and bring ourselves even one layer more deeply into the spirit of worship, singing our meditation on breathing. And for those of you who are new, the words are simple. They're printed in your order of service. You'll probably hear from our singers, there are many different ways you can sing it. And the point is to enter in and then get lost in the words and the music. Let's sing together. When I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I'll breathe out love. When I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace when I breathe join me in saying together the words of our covenant and then singing with me our doxology. Love is the spirit of this church and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in freedom, and to help one another. 
rising, there is human suffering all over this world in the course of natural and human catastrophes. We ring our gong today in honor of three such places of suffering and struggle. We ring our gong first, as we have since July of 2019, in honor of the seven children who lost their lives in federal custody in our detention camps. And we let its ringing symbolically stand for those adults who have lost their lives in the camps, those who remain in them. Many separated from their families, We ring our gong additionally once for the losses this week to COVID-19. This week, 36,883 people died to COVID-19 globally. In our nation, it was a week of record reported cases, multiple records of the kind we do not like to amass. And this week, 6,790 Americans lost their lives, a 27% increase from the previous week. We hold in our hearts all these losses and those who continue to risk their lives to offer essential services, those who suffer from job loss, whose lives are especially vulnerable to the disease and all who find that the isolation and struggle through grief and loneliness is harder the longer this pandemic continues. Finally, we ring our gong once for the previous almost four years of violence against the human spirit and American institutions against some of our best norms and traditions. We ring it for black and brown, Asian and indigenous lives and permission to violence against them and diminishment. To our trans and GLBQ Americans, to our women, to our immigrants and the poor, to those who try to live the notion of fairness, kindness, compromise, respect for the rule of law. Yesterday before the celebrations in the streets, most of us wept. As much for relief from the trauma, relief from a regimen of diminished humanity, as for tears of joy. So much to remember and to hold. And so may we keep all we have named in our thoughts and in our prayers, all those we have named and their loved ones. And may we ease the tide of human suffering this coming week, howsoever we can.
Now I invite us into a time of meditation and prayer. God, we know by so many names and no name at all. Spirit of our ancestors who weathered hard times and injustice, loss and illness to bear us into this world, to hand it all over with its inherited strengths and sins, Our backs are weary from all we've had to bear. And our spirits are light from all that is breaking through as possible again. So many weeks of lamentation Give way this week to praise. To life that endures to flourish, to feed, to commend a world to goodness. Deliver it to mercy. Mend it toward strength. Hold all that we can with the sacred trust expected of us. We pray for healing today of our own frayed parts for sure for the trauma wrought on our own spirits, absolutely. And healing too for those around us who have suffered most in fear and abuse in these times. May healing rain down upon us like waves of the monsoon across the parched landscape of our nation Waters, healing waters, sink in and drench us to the bone, quench the thirst for sweet shared life that was made bitter in the wells of our shared city squares, poisoned by small and hardened hearts for too long. Those who crushed our inheritance under their heel used our shared good our common beloved inheritance to serve their own ego and whim today begins the end of that day Today, lamentation will no longer be our cry or not our only cry. 
but our mouths are overflowing with praise for possibility and hearts softened to trust again. And hands ready to rebuild. Bless our tired and now reborn selves, spirit of life, spirit of love. Renew us for the work ahead, for all that awaits, all that is truly worthy of our days. For these and all the prayers spoken in silence, held in our hearts this morning, we hold up to be heard and made manifest by all that is in our power to command and all that commands good through all times. So may it be. Amen.
Some years ago, a photo appeared in the pages of the New York Times showing a middle-aged man with a huge mustache and rather unkempt hair, dressed in formal evening clothes and sitting on a chair in the middle of a street, playing the cello. The caption explained that the street was in Sarajevo, Bosnia, in front of a bakery, where three weeks before a mortar shell dropped into the midst of a bread line and killed 22 people. The cellist said he didn't know what to do about hatred and violence, except what he'd been trained to do with his cello. And so for 22 days, he'd been coming there, braving ongoing mortar and sniper fire to play Albanoni's haunting adagio in G minor. In Seattle, an artist saw that photo and at first reacted as any of us might. She thought the cellist completely mad and his gesture futile. But the image of him playing softly with his cello, one note at a time, like a pied piper trying to call out the rats that infest the cellars of the human spirit, finally made her ask this question. What can any of us do? Only that which we have learned to do, one note at a time. And so she organized 22 cellists to play Albanoni for 22 days in 22 different public places and then on the final day to gather in front of a window where she had arranged a display of 22 burned out bread pans alongside 22 freshly baked loaves of bread and 22 roses. The story of her artistry spread and Robert Fulgham, a UU minister in Seattle and the best-selling author of everything I needed to know I learned in kindergarten saw it and then told me, John, keep this story alive. It is important. Pass it along. And here's why. Because in each of us, deeper than the cynical guardian of our woundedness, which wants to dismiss all courageous or spiritual action as foolish or futile, there is deeper in our souls and in the soul of every person we deal with an ability to hear the music. Just listen. Fulgham says that we must never ever regret or apologize for believing that when one of us decides to risk addressing the world with the truth and the love that is in us, the world just may stop doing what it is doing and hear. There is far too much evidence to the contrary. And besides, when we cease believing this, surely the music will stop.
Our second reading from Without the Stones, There is No Arch, Invisible Cities, Italo Calvino. He writes, in the middle of Bosnia's second city, Mostar, there once was an old bridge between the Muslim and Christian quarters. In Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities, Marco Polo describes to Kublai Khan the building of such a bridge, stone by stone. But which is the stone that supports the bridge? The Khan asks. The bridge is not supported by one stone or another, Marco answers, but by the line of the arch that they form. Kublai Khan remains silent, reflecting. Then he adds, why do you speak to me of stones? It's only the arch that matters to me. Polo answers, Without the stones, there is no arch. I invite us into silence. The bridge at Mostar was bombed and destroyed. It took years to rebuild. I cannot face the possibility of the future without acknowledging how much has been broken. The very idea of American democracy, of we the people, is like a bridge hundreds of years old, resting upon two great foundation stones, truth and trust and attacks on them in recent years have been deep and deliberate. Truth has been abused and trust has eroded. Somehow I recall standing in this pulpit five years ago preaching on the question, what deserves our ultimate trust? And the answer I gave to cynics who would say nothing is that I could agree that no thing deserves our ultimate trust. That would be idolatry. And yet the interdependence of which we are but a fragile human part seems to me like an immense creative process, full of indeterminacy and uncertainty to be sure. Viruses that mutate and spread and kill. Violence that breaks out between humans. We creatures who can use our abundant freedom in such irresponsible ways. And yet, if there is one lesson I draw from this past week that remains essential in the spiritual life, it is this. Trust the process. You know, Martin Luther King actually wrote his doctoral dissertation on a Unitarian philosopher of religion 
Henry Nelson Wyman, who used that term, creative process, in a cosmic and theological sense. And King, of course, often paraphrased another Unitarian, abolitionist Theodore Parker, who said that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Parker, who was also the source of Lincoln's great phrase about government of the people, by the people, for the people. On Monday of this week, in my nervousness about election day, I spent an hour and a half watching a documentary on YouTube called Bending the Ark, The Vote, commissioned by our co-religionists at the Unitarian Church of Birmingham, Alabama, telling the story of the voting rights campaign in nearby Selma and the deaths within it of three martyrs for democracy. The first 26-year-old African-American Jimmy Lee Jackson, who was murdered by police for daring to help his mother and grandmother register to vote. The second, Unitarian minister James Reeb, who was beaten to death after Bloody Sunday when John Lewis nearly died for coming to join the marchers over the Pettus Bridge. And Viola Liuzzo, the Unitarian layman woman who was shot while driving black and white civil rights workers between Selma and Montgomery. All of which you may recall moved President Lyndon Johnson finally to put the Voting Rights Act before the Congress, ending his speech so memorably by quoting in his Texas drawl, we shall overcome while Dr. King stayed in Selma to eulogize James Reeb. Monday night and again early Tuesday morning, I stood on a busy intersection in my neighborhood of the city, holding up a sign for my preferred candidate for district supervisor. And when someone holding a sign for her leading opponent joined me on that street corner, we chatted and talked about our respective concerns. Mine about the many storefronts now empty in the area and the desperate need for more affordable housing for the homeless on the streets. Hers, I was somewhat surprised to hear, were mostly about wanting the homeless kept in some other part of the city. I said that I thought our neighborhood needed to do its part for the whole and we had to disagree about who might get us out of our respective fears. On Tuesday, in my morning meditations, I found myself going over a repeated phrase in the Hebrew Bible, which I've been teaching in a Zoom class lately. It's one that talks about replacing a heart of stone with a heart of flesh. We're all brokenhearted, writes Quaker teacher and activist Parker Palmer, to one degree or another, about one thing or another. Some about the well-paying factory jobs that are never coming back to their town, about their downward mobility or fears for their children, or the rapid changes in mores that seem frightening or disorienting. 
Others of us, of course, are brokenhearted about heartless family separations, ongoing racism, or sexual violence. But in his book, Healing the Heart of Democracy, The Courage to Create a Politics Worthy of the Human Spirit, Palmer wisely encourages conversations like the one I had on the street corner that acknowledge fear and brokenheartedness because that is the only basis from which we can rebuild trust across social divides. On election day afternoon, Gwen and I spent an hour on Zoom in the church group led by Mary Gans and Margot Campbell-Gross on aging as spiritual opportunity. And we're reminded once again of something that my late friend Forrest Church often said, that morally our lives are mortared together by our shared mortality, our vulnerability. The words human and humane coming from the same root as humus, the earth from which we emerge and to which if we are not in denial, we know we will return. And then on Wednesday, I spent an hour here on the steps of the church in an interfaith demonstration in support of the democratic process, holding up a sign reading, every vote counts, count every vote. And while I was here, my phone called me away as I learned of two deaths of friends in Pennsylvania. One, a colleague in the UU ministry, Reverend Bob Throne of Philadelphia, who succumbed to COVID at an age not far from my own. The other, our friend Rob Murray of Erie, Pennsylvania, whose heart gave out at 76. The father of our son-in-law, Andy. Rob, for over 30 years, was in charge of the juvenile courts in his city, which is about as close as a tender-hearted lawyer can get to being a sort of social worker. Andy had flown out there to say goodbye to his dad. I joked with several online that at least Rob and Bob both held on long enough so that their votes counted. By Thursday, of course, as the arc of the week went along, it was clear that any hopes for a blue wave were not materializing. One commentator opined that it was probable that many conservative voters distrusting both the media and pollsters had simply been lying low, avoiding sharing their opinions. Meanwhile, many on the left began expressing shock and disappointment that so many of their fellow citizens could vote in support of a leader who had been so self-serving and divisive. The best response I heard came from Princeton professor of African-American studies, Eddie Glaude, who pointed out what we should know about our own history, that fear and hate aren't new here. We've always been divided, he said. Two Americas? That's not new. It just has multiple dimensions. White and non-white, urban and rural, north and south, 
isolationists and internationalists, government activists and libertarians. And with the count continuing, I began finally to feel, to feel some gratitude that despite the efforts of the divider in chief to sow distrust and to stir up his followers even to violence, not even his favorite social media platform was allowing his untruths about rampant fraud to go unchallenged, nor were at least some members of his own party. When I reflect myself on American history, on the struggles for racial, gender, and social justice that I have written about and our own forebearers in faith took part in, I've certainly been taught this, that though over the long run we do make some moral progress, every step forward brings resistance and reaction, especially around race, abolish slavery and watch Jim Crow segregate the freed into separate and unequal conditions, pass a Voting Rights Act and watch the courts and states find new ways to practice voter suppression, elect an Obama or say Black Lives Matter and watch supporters of white supremacy reemerge. As the arc moves back and forth, one should not be surprised or ever give up. By yesterday, when finally the media proclaimed that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are president and vice president-elect, I found myself reflecting on how rebuilding trust will now require something like an American equivalent of the process of truth and reconciliation South Africa went through. It wasn't easy or perfect there, and it won't be here. But two years ago, with members of our choir and Mark Sumner, Gwen and I visited South Africa. And one night, she and I had dinner with my Unitarian ministry colleague there, Gordon Oliver and his wife. Gordon is not only the retired minister of the Unitarian Church in Cape Town, he's also the former mayor of the city. In the fall of 1989, he led the entire white city council in marching with Archbishop Desmond Tutu to protest white-only elections. And that action, which mobilized 30,000 people, black and white, convinced the victors in the election, the white nationalists, the apartheid government, that they could no longer avoid negotiating a transition to majority rule. And they freed Nelson Mandela. Gordon then welcomed Mandela, freed from Robben Island, at Cape Town City Hall, where he spoke to over 100,000, promising that a new and more democratic future would be marked not by revenge, but instead by facing history and working for reconciliation. 
as Gordon and I talked about how that process had been imperfect and perhaps incomplete, I received the news on my phone again of another death, that of Victor Carpenter, who once served our church in Cape Town and then came and served here in this pulpit. That morning, that Sunday morning, Gordon and I of the choir led what was indeed a celebration of the unsteady progress that must be made in the moral arc of history. When I preached here on ultimate trust, I was just back from Selma, where for the 50th anniversary of that march, I had joined some 500 plus Unitarian Universalists, including the Birmingham Unitarians who decided that they had better get the witness of their elders on tape while they still had time. And as I walked over the Pettus Bridge myself, I remember being asked by two young college journalists why I'd come. They wanted to know what I had to say to young people about organizing for justice. And I talked about my work as national co-chair of Freedom to Marry and how that campaign had succeeded because it embodied two great principles. First, shared leadership and real strategic thinking, something that Dr. King had worked at constantly, but that I pointed out the Occupy movement and campaigns that trust to spontaneity just brought about by cell phones sometimes lack. And second, we focused on real people and how unfairness to them broke our hearts, how they were leading loving lives but were excluded from institutions that others could enjoy. In that sermon on trust, I spoke about what I'd learned from my teacher, the developmental psychologist, Eric Erickson. He says that the first psychosocial struggle for us all is between basic trust and mistrust. Some young children sadly never receive the consistent caring or parenting and nurture for trust in them to prevail. Their wariness, defensiveness, brittleness can result even in a narcissistic personality. But the good news for most of us is this, that at every stage of our development, when the issues become more complex about uh, developing a sense of competency and agency, a, a secure identity and intimacy, productivity, and finally, integrity, there is a way in which we are each given the challenge and the chance to work again on trust versus mistrust. It occurs to me today that something similar is probably true in the slow struggle for authentic democracy in society. God knows we haven't entirely crossed that bridge yet, but the truths on these walls here in this great church remain.
the rule of love, the kingdom of God, is already among and within us if we would but feel it. And what is asked of us but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly together? In the coming months and years, we will be tested, we Americans, all of us, on our spiritual maturity and responsibility. We need to make a bridge over the troubled waters of our times and do what we can to rebuild foundational trust in truth the truths of history and the truths of science. We need to defend the reality of our interdependence because denying it after all has only made this pandemic more deadly than it needed to be. We need to promote and practice a politics more of we and less of me. We need to cultivate habits of the heart that embody compassion for our fellow citizens, even those with whom we profoundly disagree, knowing that they are almost certainly as brokenhearted as we are, just in a different way. And in the meantime, we need to keep rebuilding the bridge and marching across it. There are always new versions of the Pettus Bridge to cross with courage. There are always religious and ethnic and ethical divides to cross as we do with our partners in faith and action. There are structures of democratic cooperation that although broken like the old bridge in Mostar, can be rebuilt again as it was, made up now not of hearts of stone, but by hearts of flesh, mortared together by a deeper compassion. So may it be. Amen. And now, may the offering for the works and larger ministries of this community be both given and gratefully received.
process that we are called to trust, God or simply love. Let us keep moving together here in this community and beyond its walls, marching for justice in the light of that love. For as Star King's great friend and colleague Theodore Parker put it, Ours is to be a religion which, like sunlight, goes everywhere. Its temple, all space. Its shrine, the good heart. Its creed, all truth. Its ritual, works of love. Its profession of faith, divine living. Our closing hymn comes from South Africa. Sia <laughs> 
Upon us, out from within us, be gracious unto us and grant us peace. For this is the day we are given. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen.
The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.